Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 669 with Scott Mautz. Scott is back, and this time he has got boatloads of best practices. If you find yourself in the middle of your organization, how to effectively lead up, down, and across to make a big impact and to not go insane if you find yourself in the challenging role of middle management. So you'll learn one, the mindset for middle management success. Two, how to keep progressing with the 50-50 rule. And three, the trick to giving excellent feedback. If you want to check out the show notes or the transcripts or some of the links to items we mentioned here, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP669. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out the gold nuggets, which provide a summary download of the wisdom that Scott had to share. You can read it right from your email inbox in under three minutes. Each one comes out the day the episode is released. Audio style, you can also read the summary and unlock the whole vault of all 669 such summaries. Those are the gold nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Scott's story. Scott Mouths is a high-octane speaker, an expert in igniting peak performance and deep employee engagement, motivation, and inspiration. He's a Procter & Gamble veteran who successfully ran several of the company's largest multi-billion dollar businesses, an award-winning and best-selling author. He's a faculty at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business for Executive Education, a former top Inc.com columnist with over a million monthly readers, and a frequent national publication and podcast guest. Big thanks to Scott for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Scott. Scott, welcome back to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Fantastic to be back. I'm hoping to help your audience be even awesomer. Rur, rur. I guess, how many <laughs> ERs is that? Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to it. Pete, thanks for having me back, man. Oh, certainly. Well, I certainly think you've got the goods to pull that off. And so you've got a new work coming out. It's a book leading from the middle, a playbook for managers to influence up, down, and across the organization but well, that sounds very necessary. Can you tell us maybe as you're putting this together, any real big surprises or counterintuitive discoveries that came to light? Yeah, what? I, I have more than I could you know, possibly share with you. I'll do that by opening it up with a story, if that's cool with you. Yeah, please. So, you know, it has to do with, well, why the heck did I write this book to begin with? You know, why focus on middle managers when a lot of the publishing industry is so much more focused on, you know, C-suite and, or if you just started and you don't know what the heck you're doing, you know, what about these middle managers? So 
I kind of fell in love with the topic of having to do this based on a based on this particular story. So I'm keynoting for a, a client, and I, I'm going to disguise the fact to uh, protect the innocent. Let's say it was in Minnesota, upstate Minnesota. I'm keynoting at a company's know. headquarters. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. And if you're any good at keynoting at all, people will come up to you and uh, want to talk to you afterwards. So I'm doing that, and my handler comes up. He comes up and says, "Hey." Scott, I got to get you to the airport, um, so I'm going to pull you away from the crowd. You know, come with me. Okay, I follow him. He winds me through this office. It was taking me to do a shortcut to get out the side door where the cab was waiting for me. And he says, okay, oh, by the way, I got to grab one more thing. Just stay right here for a second. We were right by his desk. And, of course, so what would any person do? You know, I decide I'm going to snoop while I'm standing there at his desk because what else? Well, he's, oh, sure. I think he went to get water for me or something for the trip. And at his on his desk, there's literally nothing, Pete. It is blank, mm. except for three things. A piece of paper I'm going to tell you about right now, a picture of a monkey, and the number five. So when he comes back, I got to ask him about this. I'm like, what? Dude, you got three pieces of paper and no work on your table. Like, what's going on? Can you explain these things to me? So he hands me the piece of paper, and it's something I want to share with you now. He said, this is something that's been distributed to us that kind of encapsulates the spirit of what it's like to be a middle manager here. And I'm going to read it to you. This is what the, this is actually is what they were handed from higher management in his company that shall not be named. It was directives. It said middle manager directives. Lead, but keep yourself in the background. <laughs> Build a close relationship with your staff, but keep a suitable distance. Trust your staff, but keep an eye on them. Be tolerant, but know exactly how you want things to function. I'll read just one more. Do a good job of planning your time, but be entirely flexible with your schedule. On and on this list of these things that just didn't add up, these contradictions. I said, okay, so that's what it's like to be a middle manager. He said, oh, oh yeah, there's no doubt. And I said, okay, well, wait a minute. What about this number five? He said, oh, that, that refers to a study that I got from Stanford University. He handed it to me, and I, I was flipping through it, and he summed it up, and he said, the study shows, it's actually a five-year study, that's why the number five, and the study shows that taking a middle manager that's not very good and replacing them with even an average middle manager is more productive than adding a net new person to the team. So the story reminded him of the value of middle managers on the day when it wasn't going so well for him. And I said, okay, that's great, dude. I'm getting a flavor of what it's like to be a middle manager in your company. What about the picture of the monkey? Yes. <laughs> We're all waiting for that, the punchline. So he hands me another study conducted by some researchers in Manchester and University of Liverpool, where they were watching monkeys, a family of monkeys, or actually, I think it was over 600 monkeys in total you know, across different families of monkeys, to study the hierarchy. Right. And they would study these monkeys and they would they would code their behaviors as like either really, really aggressive, which would include like slapping behaviors and screaming and screeching or nurturing behaviors like coddling or picking the bugs out of each other's hair. Right. And then they collected the fecal matter of these monkeys, which is I'll leave that up to you. Mm -hmm. Pete. That's not that's not the job for Sounds me. Like a fun job. <laughs> to measure the fecal matter for stress hormones. And here's what they found. They found that the monkeys that were right in the middle of the hierarchy in the monkey tree, they weren't the boss baboon or whatever, and they weren't the youngest little chimpanzee. The middle monkeys were the ones that were the most stressed out and had the poorest physical health by far because they had to manage in their hierarchy up, down, and across. And that really all summed up for me the net of what it means to be a middle manager. You know, we, we have this 
this is, it was surprising to me to learn this. You asked what was surprising. That in truth, there's kind of a stigma about it, isn't it? You know, it's brought about like shows like The Office, mm -hmm. the movie's Office Space, the, the Dilbert cartoon, and there's a stigma to it. And I was surprised to find in my research how many people are yearning for inspiration to say, hey, it's okay for me to be a middle manager and pound their chest with pride. Yeah. That's why I decided to write the book. Well, that is powerful, yes, in terms of there's contradictions. You're getting pulled in many directions. There's a lot of stresses associated with it, and you don't get no respect at times. So <laughs> you don't get no respect. quite a combo. That's right. All right. Well, then, what is to be done? What is to be done? So many things can be done. So here, you know, the first thing I would say is to help your listeners understand, you know, and I talk in the book about this acronym SCOPE, S-C-O-P-E. It spells out the categories of unique challenges that middle managers face. The S stands for self-identity problems. The C stands for conflict, conflict problems. The O stands for omnipotence problems, the expectation of knowing everything. The P and the E are physical and emotional problems associated with being a middle manager. I'm just going to pick out one of those because the book goes into depth. But Pete, you know, most people say, well, the difficulty with being a middle manager is there's so much to do. I, I have so many hats on that I'm exhausted all the time. That's the most common answer of why people believe it's tough to be in the middle. And there's truth to that, right? I mean, that's undeniable. But what people may not know, and I was very surprised to find out in my research is, back to the number of hats that we have to wear as middle managers, therein lies the real reason of why it's so difficult. And that's because when you wear so many hats, it creates a self-identity problem and it creates a problem with micro-switching, what neuroscientists call micro-transitions. Whereby, because you wear so many hats, you have to transition very quickly from a deferential stance to your boss, to assertive mode with your employees, to collaborative mode with your peers, sometimes all in the same meeting. Yeah. And you have to jump into roles you weren't expecting to play. Your boss shows up and all of a sudden, oh, I got to go into boss managing mode. And you move from these high power roles to low power roles back and forth all day long. And it is exhausting. So I'm going to tell you what you do about that in a second, but is that surprising to you at all? It surprised me that that's the real core driver of what's happening, why it's so difficult here to be a middle manager. Well, I imagine that is one issue, but what's intriguing is when you get that clarity and that bullseye, like this is the thing. Yeah. So that's hugely valuable to come to in the research. So how do you deal with it? Yeah. So what do you do about it? So here's what we found in our, our research of over 3,000 successful middle managers, Pete. We found that the most successful middle managers had a mindset hmm. for how to deal with the, all the hats that they have to wear that exhaust them because of all the switching. And what we found is the most successful middle managers, they kind of reframed it. They thought of the micro transitions that you have to make not as segmented, but as integrated into one job that you're uniquely suited to pursue. Or here's another reframe I heard that I thought was brilliant. So brilliant, I wrote it down and it made it in the book. One successful middle manager said, God, all those roles I have to play, it's a privilege. My job is to think like an engineer, but feel like an artist. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, that makes a lot of sense. And he went on to explain to say, like, you have to, to be a middle manager and effectively manage up, down, and across. You really have to be skilled at being process-oriented and driven like an engineer with detail and follow-through and plans and implementation. At the same time, you have to be able to feel like an artist and, and have empathy for people and care. Because in truth, when you're a middle manager, you're at the intersection of everything horizontal and vertical in the company. And you have the opportunity to be an empathy engine for the entire company. And the best middle managers, that's exactly what they are. Not only are they the backbone of the organization, something to take pride in, 
but they're the, they're the centerpiece, the epicenter of empathy for the organization as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I have, you know, other best practices and tips. I know on the show, Pete, that your audience really values best practices. Would that be a good place to go next or you want to go someplace else? Oh, yes, absolutely. Let's do it. And I just want to simmer with that a little bit. The think like an engineer and feel like an artist. It's beautiful and it rings true as something that is necessary. And the micro switching, yes, that is tricky. And if you've got that mindset, I can see how you can do the switching all the more readily in terms of, oh, engineer mode, oh, artist mode, engineer mode, artist mode, as opposed to just a big mess of, there's a bunch of stuff I got to deal with now. (laughs) How do I, oh, engineer mode, artist mode. And so I want to hear the best practices that I imagine some of them have to do with, well, how do you identify when's the right moment and how do you make that switch? Yeah. So here's what I thought I would do today, Pete, for your listeners, you know, because there's so much in the book to share. I thought I'd first give a couple overall tips that just kept popping up over and over and over in research for the most successful managers. Then I'll just share just my one best tip for managing up to your bosses, down to your employees, and across to peers, if that works for you. All right. Two quick overall tips that kept popping up in research. Successful middle managers telling me about the importance of the golden question, which is this, to continually ask yourself, am I assisting success or avoiding failure? Because those two paths produce very different outcomes and behaviors. And we can forget, we can mean to assist success, but fall into avoiding failure behaviors. So, for example, uh, in the case of uh, assisting success, what does that look like, Pete? Well, that looks like you're blocking, you're helping people past barriers, you're removing barriers, you're coaching them, you're investing in them, you're doing whatever it takes to help people succeed. When you're avoiding failure, that looks like micromanagement. Indecision, mm-hmm. conservatism, yeah. perfectionism. CYA. CYA. <laughs> and when you ask yourself that question of, okay, am I assisting success or avoiding failure? It forces you to be very intentional and self-aware of the types of behaviors you're engaging in as a manager of others and people it has to manage up and across. What comes to mind here is it's the movie Searching for Bobby Fisher. Yeah. About the chess prodigy, Josh Waitzkin. And he's got his, you know, park coach and his fancy coach. And the park coach where he's playing the speed chess once, I don't know why this really stuck with me, but he's sort of like yelling out to him, you're not playing to win, you're playing not to lose. And it's not the same thing. (laughs) That's right. And it isn't. And I think it's quite natural with our human limbic system defense mechanisms to want to protect yourself and avoid failure and looking like a fool or getting in trouble, getting yelled at. And often those are the kinds of behaviors that aren't creating transformational results that are gonna you know, make you promoted and have your team love you and have the rest of your team flourish as well. Yeah, I think that's very, very well said. And sometimes we don't, we don't see it as avoiding failure behavior at the outset, right? Even though everybody else sees it that way. We think of it as, ah, I'm being smart. I'm being conservative. I'm making sure I have all the data you know, before I move forward. And that's really not what that behavior is helping along. Mm-hmm. Well, let's hear maybe some potential words and phrases that indicate you're in the avoiding failure mode. One that comes to mind is when you send an email and then you say, please advise. And that's fine sometimes. <laughs> sometimes that is fine. You really do need that input. But sometimes that comes across as, I'm not going to stick my neck out to make a recommendation here. I'm not going to take ownership. 
or make a decision, I'm going to do a little bit of buck passing. And again, that's a broad generalization. Sometimes you absolutely need other people's input on something and you shouldn't go full steam ahead before you get it. But sometimes it's like, I don't know, I think you can probably push this a little bit farther before you pass it over to me to do the thinking. I think that's exactly right, Pete. And, you know, a couple other keywords to listen for. Parallel path. Oh, boy, we get jargony. (laughs) (laughs) If you're using that word, that means you're creating two ways to approach something, which means you're doubling the amount of resources you're burning. And frankly, you're just not making a decision. You're running a parallel path of should we go route A or route B? And, you know, if you hear the, the, the key word of permission, I'd like to do this. I got to get permission from my boss and see, you know, listen, business builders don't have to ask for permission on everything. Homeowners and home builders, rather, home builders have to ask for permission on everything, not business builders. So you got to watch out and you bring up a good point. You got to be really intentional about the language you're using because that reveals rich indications of when you're engaging in avoiding failure versus assisting success. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, please continue. Yeah, here's another overall tip, and then I'll go into kind of up, down, and across, just one quick best tip. I hear this a lot, uh, and I'm assigning the words to this concept. I never heard these words exactly, but this is what a vast chunk of successful middle managers are doing. And believe me, we've talked to well over 3,000 of what companies determine are their very best middle managers in, the, in, the, in their organization. And I see them practicing the 50-50 rule, which is this. When things are at their craziest peak, when you feel like I'm overwhelmed, it is so busy, I don't even know where to turn my focus. You practice the 50-50 rule, which happens a lot to middle managers, right? That, that kind of busyness. 50-50 rule says, in, that, in those times of chaos, spend 50% of your time on pragmatism, 50% on possibilities. Mm-hmm. Okay. 50 plus 50 equals 100, which means you have 0% of your time left for focusing on spiraling down and and pity poor me, I've got so much to do. And here's what's so powerful about this. When you say out of all my time, only 50 of it, percent of it is going to be dedicated to pragmatism. That means you now have a half of a half of your time to prioritize and focus on priorities, right? So Mm -hmm. that means you can't accept other people's urgent. Yeah. You can't take in every single fire alarm that's going off and put out every fire. Only half of your time now, half of half of your time, right? There, in some ways to think about that, can be spent on pragmatic choices. Yeah. The other half should be spent on possibilities, looking for the opportunities in the middle of all the chaos and all the input and stimulus that you're getting. Because research shows us one of the most common traps we fall into in our busiest times is we... We tend not to focus on the possibilities and the opportunities right in front of us. Why? Because we're so busy just trying to cross things off our to-do list. Yeah. Just trying to jump from everyone else's uh, urgent to everyone else's urgent back and forth, right? 50-50 rules. It makes sense to you, Pete? Could you see that applying? I totally can. And I'm thinking now we had a guest from Franklin Covey talk about a mantra from an executive who said, he ran some uh, in the hotel space. He's like, hey, you know, if you want to keep your job, you know, just keep things running. We got plenty to do and you'll stay employed. But if you want to get promoted, bring me an improvement. Show me a few points of lift on customer satisfaction or occupancy rates. And I think that there's a lot of wisdom to that. It's always more urgent to deal with whatever's in your inbox and whatever someone is yelling at you about. But it is less urgent, but also important to see how are we getting better? How are we producing some results so that we stay relevant and we get to exist as a premier hotel chain in a world of Airbnb and new disruptors and all that stuff? 
Yeah, you're right, Pete. And if you look back on people that are, you know, great successes in their life, there's a lot of data on this. This isn't just my opinion or my personal experience. There's a lot of data that says, you know, a core success factor is the ability in the midst of chaos to spot opportunity, right? When other people are just running around, taking care of their to-do list and answering everyone else's urgent. So I think it's a really powerful, the 50-50 rule is a really powerful thing to, to kind of take into your, uh, to your, your activities uh, at work. With your permission, Pete, I'd love to share with you one very quick tip for leading up, down, and across. Would that be good? Oh, let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. So here's how I'm going to do it because leading from the middle, it's packed with so many tips. I'm going to focus on the most frequently asked questions of me on this front. And the most frequent question I get with how do I manage up to my boss? How do I do that well? Because that's tricky. Mm -hmm. The most important thing I can tell you on that front is to understand what's asked of you to get crystal clear on expectations. And I share that, Pete, at the risk of it being too obvious, because despite it being obvious, we're not so good at it. Check this out. We conducted, we're almost up to over 300 now, different boss subordinate pairs mm -hmm. that we have been interviewing in, in focus groups and through questionnaires and through all kinds of different data points to find out, okay, with this boss subordinate pairing, do they really understand what one expects from the other? And we are finding that despite upfront those both sets of people, the boss and the employee saying, yeah, yeah, we're clear. In over 80% of the cases, it turns out there were material breaches in understanding, the understanding the basics of what one expected from the other. That lines up with what Gallup research shows us as well. Gallup shows us that 50% of employees around the globe have no idea what's really expected of them. So how do you solve that? Boy, that's so fascinating. Yeah. And it rings true. Can we zoom in on some examples of, oh, I thought you expected this, but in fact, you expected that? Oh, yeah. For example, it's a perfect example. There was one boss employee pairing and the boss said, okay, it was a sales position and he expected his employee to engage in sales leadership in a certain way. Sales leadership. Okay. Yeah, sales leadership, you know, that includes that a few ways. Okay. Yeah. I want you to follow this selling process. I want you to teach your fellow sales people, because this was the number one salesperson he was, you know, working with. I want you to teach your fellow salespeople how to uh, employ the selling techniques that you're employing as well. And he had another list of basic expectations. Then when I asked the employee what was expected of him, none of that stuff was on his radar screen. Hmm. He thought his job was to protect the secrets of how he was selling so that he could personally rise up the chain and continue to be the number one person and that his boss would never have expected him to share that knowledge. He thought that his, the way he had developed selling was the right way to go and had totally ignored the company preferred method. And there was a darn good reason the company wanted him to follow this method. So he was doing his own method that turns out was creating some problems on the back end. Some customers weren't so satisfied afterward given all the things that this kid had promised because he wasn't following the standard procedure. So it's something as basic as like, this is how we expect you to sell at this company. Yeah. There was a gap in understanding. So and sales leadership can say, okay, gotcha. I'm going to continue to be a more rock star sales leader, a leader in sales by selling more and yes. by doing the things I'm doing that are working so well. Certainly. So what are the best practices then to surface those misunderstandings and get them cleared up? Yes. So powerful. It's to develop what I call a good to great grid. Here's how it works. We've all heard that book, Jim Collins, Good to Great. This is a different kind of use of this. So just picture, you know, I want your listeners to picture this. Imagine a simple chart, and it has three columns in the chart. 
on the left-hand side of the chart, that column, that's metrics that are important to you at your job. Mm -hmm. So let's say uh, you know you work in company XYZ and leadership, risk-taking, and taking initiative are three really important things you get measured on. You put that in the left column. The next column is the good column. The next column is the great column. In the good column, you sit down with your boss and you define, let's pick one metric. Let's use leadership. Okay, boss, let's you and I together write down on paper what good leadership looks like. Then in the next column, okay, boss, let's you and I agree to a definition of what great leadership looks like. And what happens is that you force your boss and yourself to get crystal clear on what just good is and what great is. And what happens is most often we get lazy when we set expectations, right? And we just assume that everybody knows what our idea of great is. Yeah. And in fact, they're delivering good at best. Mm -hmm. And the person that's delivering the good, they actually think, oh, I'm doing great. And they're not clear on what great really looks like. And you can't get to that without specificity. You need tension. That tension is the difference between good and great, defining the difference between good and great. And when you can do that, it forces specificity and clarity. Make makes sense. It's a powerful tool. Well, yeah, that's it is nice. And so could you give us an example of something a boss subordinate pair might agree to yeah. on a good picture of leadership versus a great picture of leadership? Sure. Here's one of prioritization. This is from an actual good to great chart that I developed with a team years ago. So imagine you got this chart and on the left-hand side, you have prioritization, priority setting okay. as an important thing. In the good column, what if you wrote this? It's called trash compactor management. And what that means is, you know what a trash compactor is. It takes you know yeah. a, trash and squishes into a cube. Imagine if you thought of your workload that way. And what good would look like is you say no every once in a while. So your work cube mm -hmm. gets a lot smaller. It gets squished down into a smaller, more doable work cube. Frankly, Pete, a lot of us aren't even good at that. We're not even good at saying no to stuff that comes on our table. So if you could start by saying no, that's pretty good in priority setting. Yeah. But that's not great. Great priority setting is not trash compactor management. It's accordion management. Accordion is a musical instrument that you play that you kind of uh, move your hands in and out to play the instrument, right? It, it puffs mm -hmm. wind out and you get different notes. Imagine your workload was like that now. Yeah. You contract it like an accordion at times when you know you've got a lot going on. You got a big sales call coming up, a big presentation to the CEO. But then you contract it in between so people can breathe. You're not always adding work and expanding the accordion. Mm -hmm. You're contracting it so you can learn from a big meeting, so you can take training, so you can enjoy, so you can celebrate. Then you expand the workload back out again when things get busy in and out all the time like an accordion. Now that's great priority setting. And the thing is for your listeners, Pete, I hope they don't agree with any of, of those definitions. Yeah. That they might say, well, yeah, 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 okay, Scott, I hear you. I think good priority setting is this and great priority setting is that. I actually hope they don't agree and that they come up with their own definition sitting down with their boss because that's the power of it. Well, yeah, that's funny as I'm thinking about this in the 80-20 rule, I'm thinking, no, great prioritization is I can name for you the one, two, three things that I fully expect to be 16 times as valuable per hour of my time than the other things. Like, oh, wow, okay, that's what great means. And I love that specificity. What's coming to mind for me is back in the day, consulting at Bain & Company, there were three things that were important, and it's probably the same today. And I'd say that Bain frequently is on 
does well on the best places to work lists. And I think this is one of the reasons. So they say, hey, there's value addition, there's client communication, and there's team. These are the three things that really matter. But then they break it down into like 20 something competencies. And so under value addition, we have achieves expert status. And this is what I expect from a consultant within the first six months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, they should be able to do. And on your review, if you look like someone who's been at the job for 18 months doing those kinds of things, at six months, we're gonna go, wow, you are frequently exceeding or consistently outperforming on our expectations. And I thought that was pretty cool. It's like, okay, so achieve expert status in the early days might mean like, I've got the Excel sheet and I really know the numbers and what's in them. And then in the latter portion, it's sort of like, I understand more about this thing than the client does. And it can explain it clearly at the drop of a hat. And so you say, oh, okay, I see how that's different. And one of them is certainly elevated to the other. And that's powerful. It's that specificity that sets you free, right, Pete? It, it forces you to engage in the discussion of what good versus great looks like, which is why so many of us are not clear on what good or great looks like, because we never had that discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so that was fun with priority setting. Let's hear another one, because I think this is yeah. so important. They say, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. Well, I think maybe there is another layer of specificity we need to drill into. So that's priority setting. Let's hear another example. Let's keep going. Well, this one, you know, maybe it's too generic or whatever, but it's one that I hear uh, an awful lot. What does good leadership versus great leadership look like? And, you know, you and I, Pete, could debate this all day long, right? But uh, this is an example from an actual client of mine who defi they define good leadership was doing the right things. Okay. Okay. Always making the right choice, right? On prioritization. Then they said great was, and I thought this was pretty wise doing the right things at the right time for the right reason. Mm -hmm. And the distinction was, if you just say good leadership is doing the right things, what that means is in your own mind, what you think is right in that time, in a tunnel, in a vacuum, in an echo chamber. Yeah, we're going to do the, the, the right things. And, it, and they didn't mean like do the right thing like morally. Yeah. They just meant, you know, prioritize well. But when you add on at the right time for the right reason, that brings two different degrees of specificity to the table. For the right reason, what they meant was they want leaders to be uh, acting according to the company values and principles. Mm -hmm. And doing them at the right time meant they don't want them to get ahead of themselves. They don't want them to be making ridiculous decisions without the proper data, or they don't want them to be waiting around forever to jump on an obvious opportunity. So I thought that was, that's straight from a client. I thought that was a pretty powerful and simple way to discern the two things. Certainly. And as I think about the clarity, it would be awesome to have some particular examples from recent work. It's like, hey, for example, recently you did the right thing associated with this, but it was not quite the right time because we were still waiting on this important thing. And they say, oh, okay. And so then it's extra crystal clear. And, you, and the good news here, Pete, is that for today, I put together, um, you know, I'll mention this again at the end. I put together a toolkit for your listeners. And I'll, I'll give the address for the toolkit at the end here when we're done. But in the toolkit of free tools is going to be a completed good to great grid with probably 15 examples All right. on different metrics of what good versus great looks like on leadership, priority setting, initiative setting, risk taking, vision, you name it, that'll be available for your audience. Oh, cool. Thank you. Beautiful. Well, let's see. We've covered some great stuff here. I'd also like to get your take on when I think about middle managers when there is that tension, that up, down, sideways, all over the place, like 
how do you really get something done in a big organization? <laughs> what are some of the best practice insight takeaways in pulling that off? Yeah, you, maybe this one will surprise you. Maybe maybe it won't. And it's tied to. Um, I also wanted to offer up, you know, the 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 best tip that I get for leading down in an organization mm-hmm. when you have employees. And this is tied to your question. And this is the question I most often get by far uh, for people, new managers of others. I bet you could even guess it, Pete. Is how do I give feedback and do it well? Mm-hmm. And we know that also correlates with productivity in an organization because every manager knows they have to give feedback. Everybody knows that when you have when you're a boss of others, that's part of the job. We're we're wired to not do it well, and the ability to get things done if you don't want to just do it yourself and burn yourself out has to come, of course, through others. But if you want to do that well, you have to be able to correct and mold that and do that through feedback. So the two things are intertwined. And what I always tell people is, you know, the rules are pretty simple. And I go deep into this in leading from the middle. But if you want to master feedback, Pete, here's a couple of simple rules. You got to be specific. My grandpa used to say, white bread ain't nutritious. (laughs) Feedback is the same way, meaning if it's generic and bland, no one's going to get any value from it. Take more initiative. Yeah, right. (laughs) that's right, right. If it's more like whole grain bread, your feedback, if it's filled with nutrients, people are, and it's specific and granular, people are going to appreciate that and grow from that. Your feedback has to be sincere. If it comes from the heart and sticks from the mind, it has to be calibrating. When you give people that feedback, if it's corrective feedback, Pete, they're going to assume the worst from it if you don't put it in context. Yeah. For example, let's say, Pete, you know, I'm giving you feedback on your podcast and I say, you know, Pete, uh, I'm making this up. Your microphone levels are always too low, which is not true. You have incredible sound, right? But let's pretend I'm telling you that. Now, I could just leave it there. And then you as a podcaster, what you're most likely going to do, like most human beings, is take that to the worst place possible. My, my mic levels are too low, which means I'm a loser, which means no one will listen to my podcast. Like, if I don't calibrate you on that and say something like, now, Pete, you're, you know, you're where you are in your life in podcasting. It's very normal to have your mic levels too low. Lots of podcasters make that mistake. So just, you know, work on getting the mic levels right. Right. Mm-hmm. Or if I really want you to get the message, I got to calibrate you and say, no, no, Pete, you got to understand, dude. Like if you don't fix this right away, we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. You're not, you know, you won't have a podcast show anymore. That's right. Those are two different ways to calibrate the feedback. And if you don't provide that context, people are going to go to the worst possible scenario. That's right. To that, we're talking about specificity. It could really be potent if you say, hey, man, negative 20 to negative 16 luffs is the standard. (laughs) And if someone's listening to your show and then another show, they're going to have to be fiddling with the volume. And that's not a great listener experience. And so I could really see like, oh, who cares? You can just crank the volume. It's all good. It's like, here's the kind of the implication of what that means, why it matters and why we're even bothering to talk about it. Right. And I think that that's huge, too, in terms of really hitting that. And you're right, we can take it to the worst place possible. And if we're not feeling like an artist and solely thinking like an engineer, out of specification, mm, rectify, <laughs> you know, then, then you right. can totally blow right past that and, and not That's even right. realize you've devastated somebody. That's exactly right. And even, by the way, really, the last point on giving feedback, even if you have to give that kind of harsh piece of feedback that can be devastating, like you say, Pete, if you don't, you know, put the right context around it. You also have to remember kind of the last rule here I'll share today is, you know, being proportionate about it. Research is now showing us very clearly, Pete, that for every one piece of corrective feedback you give somebody, you got to have five pieces 
of reinforcing and positive feedback. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the exception to the rule is if you've been working with somebody forever one-on-one -on -one, and you have trust to the gills filled and the, you, you could say anything to each other, you probably don't have to follow the five to one rule, but that's not most of us. So um, it's a pretty powerful thing to keep in mind uh, influencing uh, down. I have one uh, power tip for leading across. You tell me if you want me to go there next or if you wanted to take a pause. Let's hear it, yeah. Okay, so because I promised I would give your listeners one tip up, down, and across. The final is across. How do you lead from the middle, Pete, when you don't have authority over people? Yeah. But you want them to do what you want them to do. Mm -hmm. How do you do that with no formal authority? And to do that, I want to share the golden rule of influence. Incredibly powerful. It's what I've branded it. And I first learned about the concept, the general concept from another author by the name of Dan Schwartz. And I, I took it and ran with it. And I think of it as golden rule of influence because it's so important. And to teach that to your listeners, we're going to do a little test with you right now, Pete. So All right. I want you, Pete, to think of somebody in your life that has been very influential, okay. had a ton of influence over you, preferably in the professional range for now, right? All right. But you didn't report to them. They weren't your boss. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let me know when you have that person roughly in mind. I've got him. Okay. Let's take a test now. Did that person, were they so influential because they did any of these four things? Did they care, listen, give, and teach? How many of those four apply? Now, all four. Four or four. That's what we find out is usually the case. If you want to have influence over people over whom you have no formal authority, Pete, you care, you listen, you give them something, you teach them something. I promise you that will be influential to them. And if you serve that, you don't have to worry about the rule of reciprocity, that they will then give you what you need back. They'll feel compelled. They, they'll want to, mm -hmm. not out of reciprocity, just out of the fact that so few people do those four things for their peers and for their teammates. Yeah, that's powerful, especially in a world where there's too much to do. And how do you choose? Well, if there's someone that's like, well, hey, that guy's just awesome to me. So if I, eh, they all look the same to me, but it's coming from someone who's been great to me. Uh, I guess I'll do that first. That's well said, Pete. Well said. So they have it up, down, and across, man. That's that's what it, just a few tips to help you lead from the middle. Oh, thank you. Well, let's hear a few of your favorite things now. How about a favorite quote? Oh, my favorite quote is probably, life is a 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. Mm -hmm. Love that. From Char author Charles Swindoll. And a favorite book? My favorite book is, uh, I'm not allowed to say my own, uh, or I'm not going to, because that's mm -hmm. just, you know, kind of ridiculous. But I, you know, I have to admit, I'm still a big fan of Good to Great by Jim Collins. It influenced the creation of the Good to Great grid I was talking about earlier. I still find that to be a, a watermark, watershed book. Mm -hmm. And a favorite habit? Oh, my favorite habit uh, by far is actually killing an old habit, mm -hmm. which is, you know, used to be that I would compare too often, Pete, to make irrelevant comparisons to other human beings. We know that 10% of the human thought goes towards comparisons most often to other people and to irrelevant comparisons that don't matter, that force us to beat ourselves up. So my favorite habit now is when I catch myself comparing to others, I simply say to myself, the only comparison that matters is to who I was yesterday and whether or not I'm becoming a better version of myself. Mm -hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Uh, scottmautz.com, S-C-O-T-T-M-A-U-T-Z.com. And I mentioned before that uh, I put together a toolkit uh, for your listeners, Pete, to help them lead from the middle and to help them influence up, down, and across their organization. If they go to scottmouts.com forward slash free tools, that's all one word, free tools with no space in between it, uh, they can get that uh, all that valuable stuff, scottmouts.com forward slash 
free tools. All right, Scott, this has been a treat. Thanks so much for coming on back and good luck with all your leading. Right on. Thanks a lot, Pete. Thanks for what you do. It's a great show. I really love Scott's take on the 50-50 rule there because it can be very easy to get sucked into nonstop urgency mode, firefighting mode, and it becomes more like 96%, 4% if you don't proactively think about the calendar and the resources available to ensure that you're also putting some time into projects that are going to last, that are going to yield improvements and cool results that you place on your resume and that you can feel proud of when you look back at the year and say, what have I achieved? Uh, I don't know. I guess I kept things from falling apart. Well, that's an achievement in and of itself worth celebrating, but all the more so you've also contributed something that endures, that leaves lasting enrichment for the team or the unit or the whole organization. That's huge. So big thanks to Scott, and I hope to catch you in the next episode. Until then, peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.